Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkerers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we'll be talking about storytelling. The best strategists are natural storytellers. It's an important skill that we need to constantly hone. For the next few days, we'll be exploring this topic from all different angles, from how to be a better listener, to how to find quiet, and today, how to leverage mystery to tell better stories. Today, we're talking with Jonah Lear, New York Times bestselling author about his latest book, Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Cossat for sponsoring this week's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's dive into the show. My background is in neuroscience, um, kind of how people think, um, you know, at a high level, behaviorally, what exactly is human nature? What makes us unique? What makes us interesting? And then trying to understand some of the the anatomical correlates for that. So, you know, where does consciousness come from? How do we remember anything? All those grand philosophical questions that still very, very much in 2022 remain mysteries. Um, but I didn't write this book to solve any of those grand mysteries. I actually first got interested in the subject because my then three-year-old son got obsessed with this very interesting genre of YouTube videos, which is the surprise egg video. Um, I don't know if other parents out there have had similar experiences, but um, he he fell down the, rap, the Ryan Toy Review rabbit hole. Um, and for those who haven't had the pleasure of watching some of those early Ryan's Toy Review videos, uh, it's now he's now one of the most popular YouTubers in the world. He's got billions and billions and billions of views, makes tens of millions of dollars. Um, but but what first drew me to my son watching these videos was there's this very interesting technique, this communicate this communication strategy that Ryan and his parents stumbled on very early on, which is the surprise egg. So essentially, it involves making a giant paper mache egg, filling it with toys. The little kid punches a hole in the giant paper mache egg and then pulls out the toys one by one. It's not complicated. It's not profound. It's not poetic, but it works. Little kids love it. And you can now search YouTube for surprise eggs and you'll come back with an infinitude of videos. Um, and, and, and I began wondering, what is it about this trope, this surprise egg technique that little kids find so endlessly fascinating? And that's when I first started thinking about mystery because I began to realize that the same technique that Ryan and his parents pioneered in these YouTube videos, the surprise egg, putting toys inside a giant paper mache egg, was really a means of obscuring the known. So you you introduce this way to hide the answer and then it becomes suspenseful. What toys are you going to pull out next? What toys are you going to pull out next? It's like a toddler slot machine. Um, and really, it's not so different than the same narrative techniques used by George Lucas in Star Wars. We essentially go from one surprise egg to another. What is the force? Who are the Jedi? That is what propels the narrative along. Um, so you know, I began to see these surprise eggs, these mystery boxes. That's the term that screenwriters use. I began to see them everywhere um, in pop culture like Star Wars, on YouTube, of course, but also in my favorite detective stories, in Conan Doyle and Edgar Allan Poe, in Michael Connolly. Um, they're also propelled by these surprise eggs, by these mystery boxes. So it's it's not the answers that keep us reading. It's really the questions. And I was that kind of very basic insight, which grew out of watching my son watch YouTube, 
that really was the inspiration for this book. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you you touched before, you said, you mentioned that you're kind of a student of neuroscience. I mean, there must be something that ignites in our brain. I don't know if there's like some sort of serotonin or I don't know what it is. Because um, yeah. it's like that natural curiosity, uh, maybe that propels it forward. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I think when you're trying to take something as big as curiosity, it's very hard to find a neuroanatomical correlate for it. But there are some very interesting features of our software that I think a lot of scientists use to explain our interest in mystery. The most important one is probably it's called the prediction error signal. That's a core part of how our dopaminergic system works. So dopamine, um, which dopamine, you know, I think it's got this reputation as being the neurotransmitter of hedonism, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, it gives us pleasure. But in the brain, dopamine actually serves many purposes. And one of its most important purposes is to regulate our attention. So it really controls what we find interesting. And when you look at how dopamine's software works in the brain, it turns out that our biggest dopaminergic responses don't come from predictable rewards. They come from what scientists call prediction errors. So it's, you know, you train an animal, you train a primate, you hear a bell, you get a squirt of juice, um, you know, you see a flashing light, you get this treat. And after a little while, they get bored. Their dopamine neurons stop responding because rewards become predictable. They habituate to it. And that's just the curse of modern life, right? It's like why that new smartphone is exciting for a week and then it becomes another gadget in your pocket. Why that new sweater is thrilling for a day and then becomes another item folded in your closet. Um, so we habituate very quickly to predictable rewards. But if you look at what generates these big dopamine spikes, it's these prediction errors. It's getting a squirt of juice that isn't preceded by a light or a beep or a buzz. It's, you know, it's getting that light beep or buzz and not getting a squirt of juice. So it's the brain is always trying to make predictions about what will happen next. And what we find most compelling, most interesting are when our predictions are wrong, those prediction errors. And so that really is why I think at a fundamental level, we're so drawn to mystery because we really are wired to seek out the unknown because that's, you know, that is the most potent form of learning, right? If you can predict a pattern effectively, there's nothing new there to learn. You're just waiting for the rewards to arrive. But if you don't know the pattern yet, that's the brain's signal. It's the cue. Uh, let's pay attention to this. There's more to learn here. Yeah, that's really interesting because actually, I mean, most of our listeners, I think I'm going to mention this before, come from the advertising industry. And we're always trying to get, you know, people to pay attention, probably to things that most people don't want to pay attention to. Yeah. And there are so many tropes in advertising. Uh, you know, we've all seen the same insurance ad over and over again. Yep. We've all seen the yep. same, uh, you know, laundry detergent ad over and over again. And I've never really thought about it in terms of prediction error. So how can we, you know, uh, write these stories or these scripts or think about them in terms of of errors, because the other thing that makes me think about, you know, again, you you talk about neuroscience. I'm I'm sure you've heard everyone talks a lot about system one, system two, and it almost makes me think: Are we trying to jolt people out of their system one to get them to pay attention? Absolutely. I mean, you're trying to trigger system two, which requires reflection, and that's also how you learn. Um, you know, we spend so much of our life on autopilot, especially if you're watching commercials, which, like you said, are full of cliches and tropes and very familiar tricks. And I think you want to introduce some kind of surprise egg. You want to introduce some kind of mystery, some kind of unknown. It's obviously a lot easier said than done, but I think there's nothing worse than being boring and predictable when you're trying to grab people's attention. Um, that is the easiest to ignore is something we've already seen before or something that feels like we've already seen it. 
Um, I mean, just at a higher level, I think the first kind of tip that came to mind in terms of techniques of mystery that could be relevant to advertisers and marketers is I think we tend to think of advertising as a communication channel. So it's about delivering answers, delivering information that people can then remember and take away when they are in the supermarket. Um, but but that's in direct conflict, that strategy, which of course makes rational sense. That strategy is in direct conflict with the way our attention system actually works, which is the fact that answers are generally pretty boring. I mean, you can just talk to you know any elementary school teacher and if you stand up there all day trying to deliver answers, you'll get a glazed eye look pretty quick. What people are drawn to are the questions. They want the unknowns. Um, and that's, you know, that's a trick that Edgar Allan Poe discovered 200 years ago when he began developing, you know, what became the detective novel. That what people are drawn to are those stories in which we don't know the ending. Hmm. So, so how would you frame your your first tip? I mean, is it is it about having more questions than answers, or, or making the ending unpredictable? Or I think making sure you've got a very clear and compelling question up front. I mean, I think here of the Steve Jobs iPhone presentation when he introduced the iPhone seems like a lifetime ago. Um, but there's this great moment when he frames it when he talks about all the things this amazing gadget is going to deliver. And he cues up the delivery of this device. So you think you're about to see it, right? He says, it's going to be an email communicator. It's going to be a web browser. And it's going to be an iPod all in one. And, and you can feel the tension build, the suspense build. And then he just taps his pocket and says, but you're not going to see it yet. So, so, so it's a way of, you know, because he knows he's still got, when you watch you watch that keynote, he's still got 10, 15 minutes left of story information he wants to communicate. But he knows that if he shows us that original iPhone, then we're going to tune out. We're not going to remember anything that follows. So so he builds in suspense, um, which, of course, is a very difficult thing to do, you know, to not give people the information they most want, the information you've set them up to crave. It's the punchline. You want to give them the punchline. You want to give them the answer. But he knows that it's the questions that keeps us paying attention. Um, so it's, you know, it's, I think, make sure you've got a question that people are aware of, because that's why they're going to wait for your answer. And then try to hold off on the answer for as long as possible. Um, you know, I had the pleasure of spending time in the Law & Order SVU writing room. And one of my takeaways from watching these writers work was how hard they worked to keep the answer opaque and unknown for as long as possible. Because they know, you know, the show's 42 minutes long. The ideal version, you get the answer in the 41st minute. If they give you the answer in the 21st minute, you're not going to sit through two more rounds of commercials. You're going to stop watching the show. So, so it was fun to watch all the narrative loops they had to go through just to keep us from knowing who did it. Um, and I think that's true if you're writing Law & Order episodes, and it's also true if you're doing a 30-second commercial spot, um, that there should be some unknown that propels us along. Yeah. And then we're going to have to figure out how to do that in a two second YouTube bumper. So <laughs> surprise eggs, surprise eggs. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's even harder. And, you know, I think as our attention gets shorter and we get less patient because we have all these things competing for our attention, it's more important than ever to refine these tools of mystery and to use these techniques that work. Um, just, just because we live in the attention economy, of course. Um, and attention is the currency that matters most. And so we really have to know how to grab it and how to garner it. And I think, you know, not just advertisers and marketers, but all of us have a lot to learn from artists 
who have been working and refining these techniques for thousands of years. Um, you know, you go back to the oral tradition, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and and they had to know how to get people to remember these stories um, and how to repeat them and how to make them compelling. So, I mean, you can see a lot of these same techniques, they go all the way back. Um, and then I've got a chapter that talks a lot about Shakespeare and all the tricks, whether it's ambiguity or, you know, the strategic opacity of his characters that Shakespeare used to make his stories compelling. Um, you know, of course, Shakespeare often had four hours to tell a mystery. We now have six seconds on a good day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right. So kind of have a clear and compelling question up front. What's your tip number two? My tip number two is a technique that cognitive scientists call disfluency. Um, you know, I think we typically assume that clarity is best above all. And so this is more by graphic design than anything when it comes to, you know, choosing a font. You want a really, really clear sans serif font that is super easy to read. But what scientists have discovered in recent years is that disfluency, making fonts and things harder to read, harder to process, actually helps us remember them. So there's a great study by Daniel Oppenheimer, which looked at giving kids disfluent fonts. So fonts like Comic Sans, fonts that we tend to think of as being pretty ugly and clunky, that when you give students materials in those fonts, they actually learn better. They remember more. Um, and, and this is across all these different subjects. So there's something about disfluency that, that because it makes the brain work harder, we actually are much more likely to remember it and engage with the content. Um, the flip side of it is easy in, easy out, right? If you make it really easy to process information, we're much less likely to engage with it and remember it. Um, you know, I think about this a lot, uh, when I read books on my Kindle, there's a big body of literature showing that people actually have worse reading comprehension when they read when they read on Kindles, when they read online. And it oft, it's often because we're more fluent. We read faster. We're in this mindset of scroll, scroll, scroll. The fonts, of course, have been optimized to be easy on the eyes. And I often wonder if I should, if there's some way to jailbreak my Kindle and set the font to Comic Sans, make it a little more disfluent, if I would remember better. But, you know, I see disfluency as, as a form of mystery, right? It's it's not as profound as a whodunit or a Shakespeare play, but it's about making the brain deal with the unknown, making it a little bit harder for us to process the content. This is true when you're choosing a font. It's true when you're writing a melody. You don't want your melody to be super predictable. You want the brain to have to work to make sense of it. And I think there are some great examples from advertising that really speak to the power of this fluency. Um, in the book, I talk about Bill Bernbach and Doyle Dan, and Doyle Dan Bernbach team. And I think he used disfluency perhaps better than anyone. Um, you know, I talk specifically about his classic Volkswagen ads, which, you know, like these great, this great challenger campaign where he knew he couldn't follow the same cliches and modes as, as the big three car manufacturers in large part because he didn't have the budget. He had a, you know, one tenth the budget of Ford. Um, so we had to be really, really creative. And he came up with these amazing black and white Volkswagen ads that include these blind headlines like lemon, period. And you see this picture of the Volkswagen bug, and then you see the headline lemon, and then you want to read the copy. It pulls you in, right? Because it's disfluent. It's not what you expect. Everything about the ad looks different and is harder to process. Um, so I think it's, you know, disfluency, particularly in advertising, is a very, very potent technique because like you said, you know, a few minutes ago, we are so besieged with the familiar ad 
with with those cliche ads that look alike. Um, you know, every car ad in a magazine feels like every other car ad in a magazine. That when you come along with something that feels disfluent, feels genuinely different, we pay attention. We'll actually read the copy underneath the big picture of the car. It makes me wonder if there is like a balance or a sweet spot, um, you know, because we talk a lot about, you know, even in, within within tech about friction or frictionless, right? If yep. something becomes too hard, is there a point where we just don't even bother? Like, Absolutely. No, no. I mean, that's a super important point. And this is something I think Bill Bernbach did so well, very instinctively, but it's much easier said than done. You want to be different, but of course, if you're too different, we just reject you. You know, then you're atonal music, you're Schoenberg. Um, there is a sweet spot where you want to be different, but you still have to plug into enough of the familiar patterns where we know how to read you. So I think, I mean, that was the beauty of those Volkswagen ads is they still had the basic format of a big picture of a car, you know, a headline and the copy below. So at a high level, it was a structure we understood. Just just all the details were different. The fonts were different. The picture was in black and white. Um, it you know it was photorealism, Helvetica fonts. It was everything about it felt different, even though we still knew how to make sense of it. So there absolutely is a sweet spot where you want to be different, but not so different that it feels like noise or chaos or is completely unknown. Yeah. Yeah. So you still need some of those similar reference points. It sounds like it's a bit of like a sleight of hand with, with the magic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You want to be comic sans, but not wingdings or, you know, some of those <laughs> other cursive fonts that my 11 year old loves to use. And I'm you know old enough now where I'm like, I don't even know how to read this. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I, I love that term just fluency too. I haven't heard that one before. It, you know, similar to prediction it almost kind of reframes uh, this in a, in a slightly different light. So, uh, Tip number three. What's what's your tip number three? Sure. It's ambiguity. Um, and this gets back to some of the stuff we we're talking about at the top, which is that, you know, I think we often assume clarity is the highest goal, right? You want to have a clear message. You want to communicate your answers in the clearest, simplest possible form. And there is, of course, a place for clarity. Um, you know, when you read the copy below that Volkswagen headline, it is punchy and clear and easy to read and just like perfectly done. The tone is perfect. And I think that's that's in large part because it's so clear. But at the same time, you also want to know where to leverage ambiguity. Um, in Mystery of the Book, I talk a lot about ambiguity in the context of the Beatles and their late lyrics and kind of how artful they were by coming up with these very ambiguous lyrics that felt pregnant with meaning, even though they were essentially nonsensical. Uh, I talk about Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, I think those Shakespeare's sonnets, they work because they're so profoundly ambiguous and we don't know how to read them. We'll read them one way and then we can return to them and we'll read them a different way. Um, you know, and, and I do think that's a very important technique in advertising as well, where you want to balance out the clarity. One way to introduce mystery very quickly is with a small measure of ambiguity. So like, Milton Glaser's Milton Glaser's I Heart New York logo, that iconic logo, that traffics in ambiguity, right? It's it's he didn't spell out I Heart New York. He requires us to do a little bit more processing. So it's a specific type of disfluency. And that extra act of cognitive labor, it wakes us up. It makes us pay attention. Um, so, you know, it's just an another technique for introducing mystery very quickly. Um, again, you want to make sure you are communicating something clearly and there's clarity in there. But how do you balance that clarity with a touch of ambiguity? Because that, you know, 
that is what pulls us in. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, you know, when we were as soon as you were kind of introducing this this tip, I thought about the ways that we research uh, advertising. And, you know, obviously you're not saying that we, we shouldn't have any clarity at all, but that's like one of the absolute top measures, um, you know, because a client wants to know that their message is getting across very clearly, obviously. Um, they'll measure things like engagement as well. Um, but I don't know that that necessarily ranks as highly uh, for them. Yeah. And I think it begins with just acknowledging that there are often trade-offs between communicating the message and engagement. The way to engage people is not necessarily with your message. You want the message to be in there, obviously. You want people to walk away with some information you need them to take to the supermarket or the car dealer, or, you know, whatever you're advertising. But at the same time, to engage them, you want to think about things like ambiguity. You want to think about disfluency. You want to think about giving them questions up top, not answers. Um, so those may feel like they're in conflict with communicating clarity and conveying the information you need to convey. But I think they really are in service. They have to work together. Um, if you just give people perfectly clear answers, you're not going to get the engagement you want or need. All right. Um, this is becoming quite an interesting brief for writing an ad in terms of questions, disfluency, ambiguity. <laughs> I can I can feel like I'm a, our, our I'm client. I'm a little worried I'm going to unleash a, a torrent of very confusing advertisements, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, um, but they will be engaging. <laughs> um, the, the next tip is what I call the magic trick. So it's not just, you know, we tend to think of mysteries as whodunits, right? You're trying to solve a crime. But I think when it comes to techniques of mystery, it's not just whodunits, it's how the hell did they do it? So that's what magicians use. Um, you know, when you watch a magician and the reason we're mesmerized by them is, you know, not, not because there's some suspenseful narrative, but we just don't know how they pulled it off. We don't know how they made that trick work. Um, so it's, you know, it's the means of making a mystery that it's another very effective way to really bring people in and compel their attention. Um, so, you know, shorthand, nothing gets our attention like breaking the rules of reality. And this brings us back to prediction errors, right? We have very fundamental predictions and assumptions about how reality works. Um, rabbits shouldn't come out of top hats. Um, cards shouldn't disappear, things like that. And when magicians break those rules, we're riveted. We gasp. We can't help but pay attention. And I think some of my favorite ads take advantage of this technique in all sorts of ways where, you know, Specifically, I'm thinking of like big Super Bowl ads where part of the reason you're compelled is you're just, you want to understand how they pulled this off. Um, I talked uh, to a um, big ad guy named Bruce Nelson. Um, he was at McCann and places like that. And one of his big spots was this Coke ad from, I believe, the early 90s. Um, I didn't end up putting this in the book where it was a 60 long second steady cam shot. It was this block party. Um, and people were drinking Coke and the camera weaves in and out of this crowd and it's perfectly choreographed and it's, it's become a pretty famous ad. But the reason that ad works, it, it's full of, of course, the familiar tropes of sweaty people drinking ice cold Cokes, but you watch the ad and then you want to watch it again because you just want to figure out how, how they pulled this ad off, how they pulled off the 60 second, you know, seamless uncut tracking shot. Um, and I think it feels like a magic trick. And I think to the extent you can make content that feels like a magic trick where people don't know how you did it, um, that is going to be deeply compelling to people. That's going to, you know, that's a way to embed a mystery into even a short clip um, where, where people just want to pay attention because they want to figure it out. 
So do you think that comes down to like the production or the execution of something or, or can that kind of how they, how they do that work even up front in, in some of the, the, the strategy or the creative idea or thinking up front? I think it can be both. I mean, I think classically it's been done in terms of production, right? In terms of how do they pull off this tracking shot? But I think you can, you can introduce the magic trick concept in countless ways. Um, just like, how do they come up with that idea? Um, just, you know, at its core, it's about being very, very original and giving people something they've never seen before and don't know how to explain. They don't have a context for it. Um, and I think especially if you're talking about how to engage people in six seconds, there's no better way to engage people quickly than breaking the rules of reality. Um, you know, and at this point, we've become desensitized to the Geico lizard, right? Like, you know, I think there are those spots that the first, the first 10 times you saw them felt very weird and interesting. And we like, how do they pull that off? How'd they make that happen? And then you watch them for the hundredth time during the Super Bowl, and you're like, okay, another talking lizard, cool. Um, but but I think you know you don't want to underestimate the value of that freshness when you first see something you've never seen before, and it feels weird and different and a little magical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many great examples of you know whether it's a uh, you know you know, guy in a gorilla suit playing for, for Cadbury or some of the Skittles ads, which are, which are pretty weird. But I think it's, it's also interesting that, you know, a a brand itself, I don't think has to be weird or its personality doesn't have to be weird to lend itself to that sort of kind of um, interesting mystery. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Magicians tend to be very sober people. Um, You know, they, they often play up their seriousness, you know, even as, like I said, they're breaking the rules of reality left and right. Um, and, you know, I think that again is why we find them so compelling and why when they pull off a trick that we've never seen before, we let out a gasp. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're in marketing, there is no better reaction than someone gasping than someone kind of watching your commercial all the way through and then wanting to watch it again so they can figure out how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely happens very rarely. In our no, no, it, it is, it is a high degree of difficulty, but, you know, but I think, it does happen. And, you know, I think even if you can't pull off the very expensive 60 second long tracking shot for Coca-Cola, I think there are ways of introducing that kind of big concept very quickly where just something strange happens. You open on a setting that feels strange and very bizarre. Um, and obviously this applies to some of the most iconic ads, but, but I think there are more humble ways to do it as well. Um, you, you just want to jar people, right? You just want to wake them up. All right. I've, I've, I've jarred them. I've given them ambiguity and magic. <laughs> Showing them some ugly fonts. Um, <laughs> the, the last one is um, strategic opacity. Um, so that's a, that's a fancy phrase um, that I got from a Shakespeare scholar named Stephen Greenblatt, who he was analyzing how Shakespeare would change the nature of the stories he told. So very few of Shakespeare's stories are original. He always borrowed the tales from somewhere else. And in particular, you know, you look at a story like Hamlet and you see, well, how did Shakespeare change Hamlet, which had been around for hundreds of years, this old Danish fable, to make it Shakespearean? And what Greenblatt argued is that Shakespeare uses concept called strategic opacity. So in the original version of Hamlet, everyone knows it's a public fact that Shakespeare's uncle killed his father which is why Shakespeare has to pretend to be crazy. Because if he doesn't pretend to be crazy, then his uncle will suspect him of seeking revenge and will kill Helmut as well. In Shakespeare's version, the fact that his uncle killed his father is a secret. Nobody knows that. 
And his uncle doesn't suspect Hamlet of knowing that either. So then the question becomes, why is Hamlet pretending to be crazy? Is he really crazy? Is he feigning insanity? Or has he actually lost his mind in this maze of grief and sadness and depression? Um, so it all of a sudden turns Hamlet from being this very predictable character, he's just seeking revenge, to a really compelling mystery. Why is he acting like this? Not even his mother knows. Um, Greenblatt calls it strategic opacity, that he has made Hamlet a much more opaque and thus much more interesting character. And this is a technique Shakespeare uses throughout his plays. Um, now, when it comes to marketing, I think strategic opacity can teach us something interesting about brands. Um, you know, as you said, we often as, we often want brands to feel very, very predictable that we know exactly what that brand stands for. But I think in the same way, strategic opacity can make characters very, very interesting. You know, if you write a screenplay for Hollywood, producers will often come back. You can just imagine Shakespeare writing Hamlet today for a movie studio. He'd get tons of notes about this Hamlet guy. Why is he doing this? What's his motivation here? This is very confusing. I don't, I don't know why he's doing this. But of course, that is, that is exactly what makes Hamlet so interesting. So in the same way, I think we often assume brands have to be totally predictable. I think when brands are totally predictable, that they lose a little bit of what makes them interesting in the first place. That brands in the 21st century, I think they're a lot like characters. Um, they're part of our lives. We, we weave them into our lives. We think of them as friends. They trigger our feelings. They make us comfortable. Um, they give us joy. Um, and so I think in the same way, characters are much more interesting when they're strategically opaque. I think brands can be much more interesting when they're strategically opaque. When, when there is a mystery to what the hell Apple's going to introduce at their next, you know, iPhone convention or meeting or whatever they're called, or at WWDC, I think was, that just took place a little while ago. So where there's suspense of what's the brand going to give me this time? What does it stand for now? Are there, you know, how is this, how is this different? Um, if something, you know, just to get back to our first point, if something is completely predictable, it's utterly boring. Things become alive. Things become interesting. Things things grab our attention when there's a little bit of mystery to them. And that's true of a six-second spot on YouTube. It's true of a 60-second Coca-Cola commercial. I think it's also true of brands. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I wrote down kind of multi-dimensional, um, you know, like when when I think of characters, and I think there's an opportunity for brands as well. I mean, I think. We're so often as marketers trying to ensure consistency with our yeah. brand, which is important. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about the most interesting characters and whether it be Shakespeare, or whatever, oftentimes they have really contradictory, uh, you know, um, dispositions or, or, or like behaviors. Like, and I'm not saying that we create schizophrenic brands, but that's kind of what brings the dimension and the interest to them. No, I, you know, a thousand percent. You think of Walter White, you know, and Breaking Bad, like. He was full of contradictory impulses. Tony Soprano, loving family man, pathological monster. Um, but I, I mean, not that Coca-Cola should become Tony Soprano. I'm not, not advocating for that, but I think you're exactly right that what makes characters compelling is often the extent to which they're unpredictable, the extent to which they, you know, they, they can juggle these different personas, the extent to which they're just complicated. Um, you know, I think that makes characters feel more realistic. Um, it makes them feel more like real people because that's that's the way we are in real life. We're all complicated. We're full of contradictions. We all contain multitudes. And I think 
you know, within reason, it can also be applied to brands. You don't want a brand to be completely inconsistent, but you also want your brand to be capable of surprising people. Um, for not everyone to know what you're going to do next. Um, and I think that can be true when it comes to introducing products, but I think it can also be true just in terms of look and feel, um, you know, just things, things should be a little surprising, and a little mysterious. Yeah. And that's interesting. You know, when, you know, you brought up Coke before, I mean, obviously it's a brand that's been around for hundreds of years. And, and so how do you maintain that, that interest, um, and, the, and that surprise? I mean, if you map it out over the number of decades, yeah, even even in like its packaging has gone through some some reinvention. Um, so yeah. maybe that's part of kind of maintaining that intrigue. Yeah, and you know I think at a, at the highest level, don't don't be so terrified of change, um, right? Change change is always going to be alienating because humans have a very strong status quo bias. We love things to stay the same, all things being equal. But I think there is power in change, power in reinvention. Um, and, and, you know, part of that power comes from introducing mystery again, making something as familiar as Coke, a little mysterious, um, whether it's a new flavor, a seasonal flavor that package, you know, the, the personalized packaging they introduced a couple of years ago, just, just trying to make this, there's no more established brand, of course, but tr trying to make this very, very established brand still capable of doing something new and novel. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. I'm going to make sure I have these five. So yeah, the first one for uh, leveraging mystery. Um, and and I, I love how there's specific application to advertising. So creating or having a clear and compelling question up front, creating some disfluency was tip number two. Yep. Um, yep. Injecting some ambiguity was tip number three. Uh, thinking about some sort of a magic trick, kind of how yeah. did they do it? Was tip number Magic four. trick broadly construed, obviously. I, you know, I don't you don't need to have a magician um, in the first six seconds, but just thinking about how can we create something that someone won't automatically know how we made it, right? So, I mean, I, I think about it's a magician, it's it's a Mark Rothko painting, right? So you look at a Rothko painting and it's a field of color, but it makes us feel something. How the hell did he do that, right? So, so, so I mean, you know, I think that technique um, it, you know, really can be defined broadly because it is about just making something where people don't know how we made it because they've never seen something like this before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh, adding some strategic uh, opacity. Um, yeah. I'm curious, what, what what's next for you? Are you, you, are you still uh, uh, intrigued by mystery? I'm, do you have a, a, another book forthcoming or what's, what's next for you? Um, I've, I've just begun, uh, working on my next book. Um, still, still, still puzzling it out. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I remain as fascinated by mystery as ever. Um, I, this was one of my favorite books to write. It was so fun. Um, just getting to wander around, like I said, getting to hang out in the law and order SVU writing room and meeting, uh, you know, I end the book with a very well-respected Porsche mechanic. Um, and kind of his hardest Porsche to repair. It was a relatively new Porsche 911 that wouldn't turn off. Um, you take out the key, switch it to off, but the engine would keep purring. Um, and it took him six months to figure out what went wrong. But it was really about how how the best jobs help us, um, you know, give us a sense of solving mysteries on a daily basis. It's it's something deeply satisfying. And also then, you know, I think his job 
being a car repair mechanic is a great example of how our relationship to mystery is changing in the 21st century, right? So how do we relate to mystery when we can Google every question? And Google never comes back and says, I don't know. You always get a million hits, no matter what you type in. Um, so, so for car mechanics now, right? I mean, it used to be they were like doctors. They'd have to puzzle out what was wrong with the car based on the symptoms. Now, now the cars are all digital and they're basically computers with four wheels. You stick in a dongle and the car tells you what it thinks it's wrong. What made this Porsche 911 so hard to solve is the car didn't think any was anything was wrong. So it's very much an old fashioned mystery. So I still think a lot about how our relationship to mystery is evolving in the 21st century with all these digital tools that are designed to give us answers very, very quickly. Um, I think a lot about mystery in the classroom, um, you know, like how we have an educational system, especially here in the States, which is geared around giving kids answers. They can regurgitate on standardized tests. Um, which is all well and good, I guess. But when you look at the classroom, you have to also realize that's going to make the classroom very boring. That the standard chalk and talk method of here are the things you need to remember, they're all answers, is always going to be much less engaging, especially for kids who are, you know, perhaps the most wired for curiosity. Um, so how can we bring some of our new awareness of mystery um, into the classroom? And then I think, you know, the, the last thing about mystery that I keep thinking about is how mystery fits in with the social media landscape. Um, you know, I think in the age of personalized content, personalized news feeds, that's kind of the, you know, the antonym of mystery, right? Like Facebook says, here's what you believe. I'll give you more of what you believe. YouTube says you watch videos about X. I'll show you videos X plus one. Um, so, you know, when we live in these feedback loops of information where we've got these algorithms that know what we watched before and want to give us something just like that, um, how we break out of that and how Facebook can, you know, in the same way, I think marketers can learn a lot about the psychology of mystery. Is there a way to engage the audience on a personalized newsfeed that doesn't just give them more of what they already believe, but instead finds a way to amplify complexity, engage with subtlety, um, you know, use some of these same techniques we've been discussing, but within a personalized newsfeed. So, so I think about, you know, this subject that began with me watching my son watch surprise eggs on YouTube. Um, in the 21st century, I think it has some pretty big consequences. And so I continue to think about all the ramifications of our relationship to mystery in 2022. Yeah, well, when you frame it that way, that, that makes it super interesting. I hadn't thought about that, you know, just all the things that you were touching upon in terms of, you know, is technology making us more predictable? Is it making us, uh, I, I would say, like causing div divisiveness between us? Is it making us more impatient? Is it, you know, the amount of things that you can track and the data that you have now, is it making us assume that everything is miserable? Um, not miserable, sorry, measurable. Um, and so removing the mystery from that. There, there are just so many implications of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when we measure engagement purely through clicks, um, I think you're measuring a very superficial form of engagement. I think that's where you may, you may amplify the power of kind of those feedback loops where you believe this will show you a different version of this that you're going to agree with. You may get a click there, but you're not going to get deep engagement, right? Because we already know that. Um, so if you want, you know, I think we need to come up with ways of measuring deeper engagement, which isn't just about a click, goes 
goes beyond a click. Maybe it's how long someone actually watched that video, how long they spent on that website they clicked through. Did they read the whole article? Um, did they scroll down? Are there ways of measuring engagement that go beyond just clicks? Because I think that's when you'll really see the virtues of using some of these mystery techniques. Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat with us today. We uh, There's a lot that we are able to leverage uh, from this conversation. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.